you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the black Bibles in the seats around you and turn to page 813, where Matthew 8 can be found. We're going to mostly look at verses 18 through 22 in Matthew 8. In just a moment, I'll read them out loud for us to see this text as we continue just working through this large book, the Gospel according to Matthew. And right now you should know that we're in a section of Matthew where he strings together, not necessarily in chronological order of when they happened in a timeline, but thematic healings and miracles of Jesus. That's the section that we find ourselves in at this moment. So different healings and miracles. And last week we saw three of them. And then next week, Lord willing, as we gather back together, we're going to see three more miracles. And then there'll be in between each of these little sections about what it means to follow Jesus. So that's where we're at right now is this little section in between the miracles that talks about what it means to follow Jesus. And so as I read this text, I want to first tell you about an interesting story of a pastor named James Montgomery Boyce. Some of you maybe have heard him before he has gone on in past, as we're about to find out. But he used to be a very well-known pastor in downtown Philadelphia of what is a famous Presbyterian church. He was sharing with his congregation one Sunday after he was recently diagnosed with liver cancer how they should pray for him. And I thought based off of what we saw last week, what we're going to see this next week, and as we're kind of in this middle between the healing and miracle stories of Jesus, this could be a helpful explanation for what we have heard. So James Montgomery Boyce, after he informs them of his liver cancer, he says, Should you pray for a miracle for me? Well, you're free to do that, of course. And my general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can and does do miracles, is also able to keep any of us from getting the sickness in the first place. So although miracles do happen, and they are rare by definition, miracles, in order to be called a miracle, are unusual, not normative. Above all, though, I would say, if you'd like to pray for me, pray for the glory of God in my life. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you think of all that he has done, when in all of human history did God most glorify himself through a man? It wasn't through healing. It was through the death of Jesus on a cross. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from that cross and that death, though he could have. Do you remember when Jesus said, don't you think I could call down ten legions of angels and defend me? But did Jesus call those angels down? He didn't. And yet, there we find God being most glorified, where he is most in charge And when things like this come into our lives, we should remember they are no accident. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and let something bad happen and it slipped by. Our God is not only the one who is in charge, our God is good and he works all things for good. Eight weeks later, James Montgomery Boyce passed away and went to be with the Lord he spent his life proclaiming. He died trusting in Jesus and seeing in Jesus something far better than just physical healing. He pointed his church to pray and long for something more than just physical healing, although he said, go at it, pray for healing and miracles. But remember, they're rare. That's what miracles are. They're rare. Most of us won't be healed, but all of us can glorify God through our life and through our death, through healing and not being healed, through our sickness and our pain, and the glory of Jesus is 
enough. That's where we're going in this message. As we see between these healing stories, we have little vignettes, little stories of Jesus making this point, I'm enough. I'm better than even healing. So is he really worth it? Is James Montgomery Voice just an old man who's losing it because he's sick with cancer? Or is he speaking sense, the only sense that you and I need? I'm going to read the passage in Matthew 8, and you and I will hopefully see what Jesus concludes to that question. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So the big question that I asked right before reading this, is Jesus worth giving your life and knowing that maybe if you don't get healed and you don't get prosperous, is he still worth following? Who is this man that is teaching these things, saying these things, and even performing these miracles? And really, anytime we're in Matthew's gospel, it's always good to just be asking, who is Jesus according to this text? And I'm going to answer that by giving three questions. Is Jesus the leader of a world-changing movement, like a big, charismatic, political world leader, or even the start of a new religion or something? Is that, is that really how he's being presented as you read about Jesus in a book like Matthew? That's question one. Question two, is Jesus a good teacher? Should he be lumped together with many other good teachers that teach morals and ethics and philosophy and things along those lines to help you and I live a better life here and now. Is, is that who Jesus is? Third and finally, we're going to ask, or is Jesus the Son of Man? And what does that even mean if he is? First, is Jesus this charismatic leader of a new movement to start a new religion, that he came on the scene and he is popular and he is getting all kinds of attention because of his healing and his miracles. Well, if you read our text and you read before and after it, so turn your Bibles a page or two over to Matthew 4, and you'll notice that this isn't the first time that Jesus has great crowds following him. Look at the end of Matthew chapter 4 on page 809, in the very last paragraph of chapter 4, verse 23 and following, it talks about him going throughout this whole region of Galilee. So this is several miles above Jerusalem in a smaller town called Galilee. He's teaching in synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's healing people, verse 24. And it says his fame was spreading throughout the whole region called Syria. And that then more people would come, the sick, the afflicted with various diseases. And look at verse 25. And then it says great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, meaning that there's a region in the Middle East where you think of present-day Israel and Jerusalem and those all over that region of the Middle East, people are hearing about Jesus and his fame is spreading. So clearly we can see that he's popular. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus gets onto a mountain and he sits down. He starts talking to his disciples Flip over a couple pages into chapter 7, and you'll notice that the crowds at the end of his message, they're astonished. They're still there. There's all these crowds listening to Jesus. He's this great teacher. He has authority in verse 29, for he was teaching with them as one who had authority. So he's certainly got some sort of charisma, something going on that would think, man, this guy has it happening. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, the start of our new section, it says that he came down from the mountain, and who's following him now? Great crowds. And it would be easy to read up to this point to think that, yeah, this is who Jesus is. He's this dynamic, powerful healer, wonder worker. He's this awesome teacher, and people just love Jesus. What we're going to quickly find out as we keep going through Matthew's gospel is that not everybody loves Jesus. And that fundamentally, he is not fond of big crowds of people. 
And we start getting a hint of that here in our text. Look back down at verse 18 and notice what happens. Now, when Jesus saw this crowd again that's gathering around him, he gives orders to go over to the other side, the other side of the lake, that is. Jesus has big crowds, and it's as if he's trying to get away from them. And this is not an isolated incident. Repeatedly throughout reading the Gospels, you're going to find that when big crowds start coming, Jesus wants those people in the crowds to either not just get away from him because he's like annoyed and tired of them, but to really consider who he is. And so at times, he is going to get out, get away, go to pray, be alone, or say something to the crowd, or in the context of the crowd, that's, let's just put it, not the best politically correct thing to say in that time. In other words, it seems like Jesus needs a public relations person, that his campaign to be the next world-changing leader and start of a religion is going terrible. And there's these moments, if you could think of recent political people that tweet something out and people are like, oh no, that's not good. Like Jesus is kind of making those mistakes, you could say, if that's who he is supposed to be. This political, world-changing movement leader. I think when you read this text and many others that are like it, you should be like, Jesus, what are you doing? You've you've got an opportunity before you. You've got numbers and numbers of people. You've got a following. You've got people on your side. You've got momentum. Seize the momentum. And it seems as every time it seems like the momentum is getting at its biggest point, Jesus says or does something that makes you think, wait, who, who are you? What are you trying to do again? Jesus, when he dies, has 120 people left that really love him. At times, you're going to read that there were crowds of thousands, maybe even 10,000 people that were interested in something they could get from Jesus. But when it all came down to the end, there was at least 120 that we know of that were left. Think about that for a moment when you start considering what this might mean for how we start to evaluate our ministry of following Jesus, being like him and determining what success is and what fruit is. If we're really going to follow the pattern in the way of how Jesus looks at things, it seems like he's not about big numbers first and foremost, or immediate success, or a big rousing crowd that wants something out of a person. If Embassy Church had thousands and thousands of people coming at the end of my ministry, but then right before I retire, there's 120 people left, what do you think the story would be? Well, he had it going on, but then something happened, and like, yeah, the church declined bad. We thought he was a great pastor, but... Only 120 left. Typically, world-changing movements don't start with 120 people. You'd think he'd build off the momentum of the crowds and overthrow the Roman government. But repeatedly, Jesus is going to say that his ministry is going to be like a small mustard seed. It's going to, at times, not be obvious to you how he is working Large crowds in America equals success, book deals, applause, bow before this great mighty pastor who's getting all kinds of people to come to his church. Why does it seem that Jesus is so different in his determining of success? Have you been convinced and have it rooted deep down into your soul that the way of Jesus, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, will not always lead to immediate results that can easily be measured? That it will grow slowly over time? That it will oftentimes be hard to know if anything good is coming at all? And that it may not be something you even see in your lifetime, all the fruit from it? How do you think this idea might influence the way we do church? How we should measure our success? Should we be primarily focused on 
putting on an event Sunday after Sunday that attracts lots of people. And then when we get lots and lots of people coming on a Sunday morning, that we then clap and get happy and pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, we're a successful Christian church. Those of you that have been around our church for quite a while know that that's the exact opposite of what we've been aiming for as a church. That if by God's grace we'd have 120 disciples, we'd be, that's, that's great, that's fantastic. But the key word is we want true disciples. People that are growing deep. And yes, we'd want to see more and more disciples made, but we know that oftentimes, unless there's a great outpouring of the Spirit through a revival, which I believe still happens and has happened and we should pray for, but more often than not, it will be slow and steady, and multiplication takes time, and it often means sending people out and not gaining more and more here, and being happy to send people to the world and the nations and to the neighborhoods next door. It means praying for other churches on a regular basis, not being envious of church growth somewhere else where good spiritual fruit is happening, but celebrating the kingdom. It means not hoarding our people to think that This is the only place where you can go and gather and hear God's word preached. What other things might you think of? How this might influence the way we think about church? Should we be focused on slow, steady, lasting, eternal change? Aiming our eggs and putting it in this one big basket called discipleship? What kind of person do you want to be? Because collectively, we'll only be that kind of church if individually all of us come together and have this sense, not just as we come on Sundays, but is this the way you think about your everyday ministry and work and how you live day in and day out, Monday through Saturday? I was thinking about moms in particular. Moms with young children, which there's handfuls of you around the room. Is this what typifies your ministry to your children? That you're thinking about the big picture long term and not just the immediate results. How might parenting look different, moms and dads, if we're not just looking for immediate results? Because there's ways to manipulate your children. There's ways to guilt them into obeying something, and there's ways to make them look good on the outside. But have we not heard enough testimonies of people that say, hey, moralism, like this morning downstairs, moralism was taught, but I really didn't get a sense of Jesus and the gospel. Is that the kind of parents that we want to be where we're thinking about the long-term gain, the eternal fruit? and not just the quick, easy success of getting our kids to obey us right away. In other words, Jesus did not come to say, I'm going to be a world-changing leader with quick, immediate success and big, overthrowing movements. It was slow and steady, and so it has been for the last 2,000 years. And more often than not, it will be here in our lives and in our church. And I challenge you to think through your life and in what ways your view of the kingdom is different the kingdom of Jesus, that is, compared to the kingdom of this world? That's our first question. Jesus is not this world-changing leader, the way we would think about it, that wants to mass crowds and gain popularity and then be this next political figure. He ran from the crowds. He said things that they could not tolerate. So then who is he? We'll look down at verse 19. You'll see that a scribe came up to Jesus and said to him, "'Teacher,' I will follow you wherever you go. Okay, there's a title. Maybe Jesus is just a good teacher. And it's very true, is it not, that Jesus is a teacher. He is a rabbi. He would best be defined as a prophetic-like teacher, I think, at times. But is that the primary and the only way we should think about Jesus? I think there's two big problems with calling Jesus just a good teacher as your primary way. First problem is it's reductionistic. It reduces all that who Jesus is revealed for us. I think there's a lot of people that are motivated to come to church Sunday after Sunday because they primarily want to hear good teaching. And by that, I'm using it to say they want 
help for how to live their life. Like they want to care. Like help me get through another week with something practical, something helpful. And although I am not against practical teaching, I'm not against thinking that that wouldn't be useful for you, and I think it's a very important part of the Christian life, in fact. But is that the primary thing that we should be longing for and looking for and wanting out of church, and especially Jesus himself? Do you want to add the teachings of Jesus into your already established goals and vision for your life and figure out how Jesus can help you get to your dreams and goals? If so, then you're seeing Jesus as a good teacher. Or might Jesus want to say right from the start, I want to give you new goals, new dreams, new visions, new values, a whole different way of thinking about it, and then I will empower you and teach you how to live out that goal, that vision, that dream. And if you have it flipped around, then you really don't understand who Jesus is or what it means to follow him. He's not just a good teacher. He's not on the same par with Plato, Aristotle, Confucius, Buddha, or Muhammad. He's not just another prophet in that sense. He's a lot of great things, and he should be understood as a teacher in some respects, but so much more. It reduces who Jesus is. Secondly, I think that this phrase teacher, here in this text, Matthew is showing us as we read the Gospels that it is actually belittling, like offensive. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to look through the Bibles a little bit here, but when you read this, it says, a scribe came and said to him, teacher. And every time the word teacher is being used, especially by somebody who's like a scribe, a Pharisee, or as we'll see, a rich young ruler, it's not a positive context. So first, turn a few pages to Matthew 12, 38. Page 817. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see what's going on here? Here's a scribe, Pharisee group of people, what do they call Jesus? Teacher. And they want to see a sign. And Jesus knows your heart is evil. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 19, 16. Matthew 19, 16, the story of a rich young man. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And if you read the story, you find out that a rich man seems like interested in the teachings of Jesus. But as you drop down, look at verse 22, after Jesus responds and tells that you should give all that you have and sell your possessions and give to the poor. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Did he really want Jesus? No, he wanted to add Jesus into his life. Let me keep all my possessions. Let me keep my goals and my vision and my dreams. And let me just add a little Jesus so I make sure I have eternal life. Keep going. Turn to Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle or entrap Jesus in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, and they called him teacher. We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What's the point of pointing this text out? Notice how it starts. Pharisees again, people who are supposed to be in the in crowd, religiously speaking, and their hope 
is to ask a question to Jesus to trick him, to trap him, to get him in trouble with the Roman government, and that's why they start asking about taxes. Are you seeing a pattern yet? Every time Jesus is called teacher, it's by somebody who seems to be on the in crowd, and they prove to be outside of the way and the teaching and the message of Jesus. It seems to be belittling Jesus to call him just this teacher. At least the way Matthew's presenting it. There's one instance where somebody calls Jesus what would be the equivalent of teacher, and he is actually a part of the in crowd of the disciples. And so does that just blow up the theory that I have been presenting all along? Or does it nail it down further? Well, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, starting in verse 20, as Jesus is at his final evening before he dies, and he's having a meal called the Lord's Supper. That's what we call it now. It would have been a Passover meal then. And look at verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, meaning the twelve disciples. They're on the in crowd. Hey, thanks, man. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi, or Teacher? Are you guys getting it? Everyone around the table is going, Lord, Lord, Lord. Is it I, Lord, Lord? In other words, there's a theme through Matthew's gospel where everybody that's really loving Jesus calls him master. It's the word kurios for Lord. It's also the word that's used to talk about Yahweh in the Old Testament, which is a whole nother teaching and concept. But for now, let's just get the concept of humble submission to the master, the Lord. And the whole table, all 11 guys are calling him, Lord, 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 Lord. And then you get to Judas, teacher. Yeah, I think that nails it down, that this phrase is being introduced in Matthew 8. And you keep reading through, and you notice every time Jesus is called teacher, it seems to belittle him. Now, I don't want that to be taken too far. Like I said, it's fine for you to understand Jesus as a teacher. It's fine for you to understand that he taught good things and we want to receive his teaching and that the term rabbi is not somehow belittling. I'm trying to show you a thread through Matthew's gospel of the kind of people that are using teacher and the kind of people that are calling Jesus Lord. For example, if we all turn our Bibles back to Matthew 8 in our original text, in the same context where Jesus is called teacher in verse eight, uh, 19 of chapter 8, Do you remember earlier from last week, chapter 8, verse 5 through 8, that in Capernaum, a centurion, which is a soldier of the Roman government, came forward and appealing to him, and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. And Jesus says he'd come and heal him. And then verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord. So again, you've got this contrast between a Gentile Roman soldier who's calling Jesus a master, a Lord, And then you've got the Jewish scribe, the guy that you thought would be on the inside, who's actually, we don't know for sure, but it all seems to lean toward he's on the outside, not really getting it. So, a committed Jewish man calls Jesus a teacher, and he seems to say that he would follow Jesus anywhere that Jesus would go. And Jesus responds by saying, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Jesus is not begging for people to follow him or adopt his teaching in Matthew 8. He's turning people like this scribe, as we might assume, away. He wants unconditional trust, undivided allegiance from all who would follow him. He's healing all kinds of people, but he's telling this Jewish scribe, if you follow me, it will mean poverty. No place to lay my head. It doesn't mean that Jesus had no homes to live in. He always slept on the dirt. Uh, My guess is he probably did at times, but we know he stayed at places like Peter's house, just the story above this one. We know that he had friend and help and support from a variety of people throughout his life. It just meant that he is not leading his ministry to a palace. He's not leading it to prosperity. He is an itinerant, traveling, prophetic teacher that does not get much praise and success in the worldly eyes. But this man is worthy. This man, Jesus, is worthy of undivided attention, undivided affection, undivided devotion. Look at the way he speaks to the next disciple. Verse 21. Another of the disciples, and I believe the disciple phrase here is just saying another person in that big crowd of people that seems to be wanting to follow Jesus, that disciple says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is easily one of the most jarring comments that Jesus makes in all the Gospels. It's up there in terms of, you know, the hard sayings of Jesus at times, especially the more we understand its context, what this meant socially. Let the dead bury the dead. I would imagine a lot of you, as you hear that, here's a man that wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, listen, you, you can't go bury your father. And we were thinking, what? That's insensitive. And I don't think that's probably the exact way to read this, as if it's just this insensitive, he has no respect for funerals. So, to understand the context, think of it like this. What's, any of you have routines in the morning? You have things that you just do. What's the first thing you do when you get up? You, you drink your coffee, you know, you go exercise, you read your Bible, or do something like that? A Jewish person in this day, the first thing they do when they get up is they'd say the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's a prayer. And they'd say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. We have no other gods. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they go through this routine of praying. So if you know people that are like real religious and stuck, like that's, get that context. This is what's happening. And there's only one exception for why that should not happen as the first thing you do when you wake up. One exception. And it was as if you needed to go bury your father. It's like this is written down in the Jewish like Talmud and the rules for how to be a Jewish person. So what's going on here is that they understand that this is of the highest precedent that would take over your normal routines and activities. This has precedent priority over any other of your normal activities. I just went to a, a funeral this week. Cleared my schedule for two days to drive down to St. Louis. It takes precedent, right, when somebody close to you dies. So it seems a bit offensive at first to think Jesus would say, well, yeah, of course you should be doing that. Go, go bury your father. Or is this just an excuse? If this man's father really already died and he needed to do the funeral, what in the world is he doing by Jesus? That's the first big problem with thinking that this guy really has a good excuse. It sounds like he's putting conditions out there. He's making excuses. So there's various ways to interpret this. One would be that he's basically saying, listen, I'll follow you, but I need my dad to die first because then I need to get his money, the inheritance. And I don't want to leave you now because if I leave you now, I may get disowned from the family, and if I get disowned from the family, I'll lose my inheritance. That's a pretty harsh way of looking at it, at least in terms of your view of this guy. Uh, Another idea is just that it's an idiomatic expression. It's just a saying that would have been normal in that day, and it basically means, 
I can't really do anything unless I first get my dad's approval. And so Kenneth Bailey is one of the leading kind of um, biblical scholars that really helps say, all right, here's what the biblical text says, and then here's what the Jewish culture's like, and then when you read those two appropriately, so in one of his books, as he's kind of going over this phrase, he explains, listen, if you were a Jewish man, if you wanted to buy something, move, or even just take a long travel trip, you know, like you're going to go on vacation for a while and you're going to be gone, you can't do that until you first go to your parents and get your dad's blessing on some sort of business adventure or some sort of travel. I know this is not the way you and I typically work. We pretty much just kind of do whatever we're going to do, and we're more, more individualistic. You need to remember this is a society where your parents, even as they're aging, you honor them and you respect them, you obey the fifth commandment, and they have like the say over certain things. Now, sometimes it might even be just more ceremonial, if you get what I'm saying, where they're going and doing that even though they're going to do it anyway, and it's just like to honor the parents, I'm going to talk to them about it before they just go run off and do it, and then mom and dad find out like, what? You did that? Either way, do you get the point? Mom and dad would have easily been the highest authority for a Jewish person, the highest allegiance. Respecting your mother and father would have been the top thing that you would made sure you are doing if you want to keep your society relationships good. This is why Jesus' story of the prodigal son is so devastating that the son would say, Dad, you're dead to me. I want all your inheritance now, and then I'm going to go squander it. It's one of the reasons why in the Jewish worldview, what is the way that we're told again and again, how should we think of Yahweh, the one true God, the highest authority and supreme allegiance? What's the most common designation by Jesus of how we should talk to that God? Our Father. That should not be a surprise. So Ken Bailey, he says in one of his books about this passage, he says he remembers the first time teaching it to a group of people that are from the Middle East and the Palestinian-Israelite community. For a long time he taught as a scholar in like, um, Israel and um, some of the neighboring countries, I forget all of them, but he's teaching and he says the shock on their face when he explained, let the dead bury their dead of all of the people. So You need to put yourself in those shoes, in that cultural context, and realize that regardless of which interpretation it is, it hits home really hard that Jesus would say, let the dead bury their dead. In other words, there is no authority higher than Jesus' call to follow me now. Drop everything. Don't make lame excuses. Don't have conditional acceptance. Think about your following Jesus. Have you ever heard or even yourself been tempted to say, yeah, I'll get serious with following Jesus or getting involved in Christian things or going to church after, and then fill in the blank, after I get married, after we have kids, then we'll kind of get into the religious stuff. Or maybe after I can get a house and I can get things settled in my life and my career. Conditional acceptance is rejection to Jesus. I want that to sink home. I want you to think about your coming to Jesus, your Christian life. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to think, do you want to become one? Because Jesus is doing a good job. He's not your normal salesman. You know how salesmen work? Hey, buy our product. Oh, then we'll give you the fine print afterwards and then tell you all the conditions afterwards. Jesus is so straightforward, isn't he? He says, I'm going to demand total allegiance right from the get-go, right from the start. If you want to follow me, you've got to lay it all down. Your dad is no longer supreme. I am. J.C. Ryle, a theologian, once said, nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling Christ's army with people who are willing to volunteer based on little professions for Jesus. Basically, the people that are just like, yeah, I get excited about Jesus. I want to follow him. And certainly, I think this has massive implications for why we as a church care about covenant membership, why we want to assure everyone around us that this church is full of people who are committed. And if we have that kind of message and people say, you guys are, you're strange, you're weird, you're like a cult, you're too serious about church or this or that. I feel like when we read texts like this, we don't need to apologize for setting a high bar for your following of Jesus Christ. 
is Rosaria Butterfield, a recent convert to Jesus. If you don't know her story, I would recommend reading. She's got two books that kind of explain her story. The first one is Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Unlikely convert because she was the leading feminist at Syracuse University, had tenured professorship in her 30s, so had this amazing run as a young person to be this leading voice of the feministic LGBT community movement. She was active in that, practicing in that, had a partner, had a home, had a dog, had everything that she could have dreamed or want in her early 30s, and was this tenured professor, like I said, at Syracuse University, and then slowly and surely Christians start running into her life and pray for her and lead her to Jesus. And she said about her conversion in that book, conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. I sometimes wonder when I hear other Christians pray for lost people if they realize that this comprehensive chaos is the desired end of their prayers. Often, people ask me to describe the lessons I learned from the experience of coming to Jesus. I can't. It was traumatic. Sometimes in the crisis, we don't really learn the lessons. Sometimes the result is simpler and more profound. Sometimes it's just our character being transformed. In a nutshell, my conversion was this. I lost everything, well, except for the dog. If your entire career is based on the LGBT feminist movement and you convert to Christianity, could you imagine she might lose some respect, friends, and even her position? And so it was for Rosaria Butterfield. Following Jesus is unapologetically taught throughout the Bible very, very hard. So, again, if you're here today as a Christian, you should know this to be true in your own life. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're considering what it means to be a Christian, we don't want to pull any punches. You should expect suffering. How many of us in this room, we struggle because we see suffering come into our life and be like, wait, I thought this following Jesus thing was a good gig. How come things are getting harder in my life? If anything, that should be the sign, oh, maybe this is actually the way it's supposed to go. Did any of you hear the story of the Indiana missionary and their family that went over to Africa for several years and decades and recently moved over to Cameroon and then was in a crossfire and was shot to death in the temple? Funeral service was yesterday as the family is mourning and grieving the loss This is not just stories of 2,000 years ago. This is stories of yesterday. Christians going to share the love of Jesus in Africa and getting shot in the head by what they believe is terrorist activity and wanting them to stop spreading the message of Jesus. Following Jesus is hard. You might die. Luke 14, as was read earlier in the service, said, you can't count your life as more valuable. Be willing to leave father or mother, brother or sister, son or daughter. So why in the world do people follow Jesus? Because the alternative is impossible. Following Jesus is hard, but not following him is not an option. Put the two choices before you. To reject the teaching of Jesus is to reject truth, is to reject life, is to reject what you're made for and why we exist. This is what we as Christians call the gospel message, the story about who you are and why you were made. Good God, a creator, made us in his image. And as we sinned against him, we have no rights before God anymore. We have only the right to be punished as we rebelled against God. So it's only because of God's mercy and His grace that He would send His Son Jesus into the world as this man who comes to heal and to save, not just from physical healing, but the whole problem of the world, which we sum up with this word called sin. And that that sin has eroded all kinds of people's minds, hearts. It's, it's messed up the whole chaos of the world natural disasters, shootings in California, etc., etc. 
doesn't take long to see that there is something wrong with the world and that when Jesus came into the world, it was to heal and rescue and restore us from it. There's not another option to receive the restoration and the healing and the promises that God gave us than embracing Jesus Christ. So choosing Jesus is very, very hard. But the alternative is just simply impossible. Has that gripped you? Do you understand your faith in that way? If Jesus were just a good teacher or the leader of a world-changing movement, I'd say, guys, just, you know, pick and choose the teachings that you like from Jesus. But what if Jesus was neither of those two things primarily? What if he was the Son of Man? And let's close with that thought. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of Man? More often than not, when I ask this question, the response I get from people, and this is what I remember hearing when I was growing up as a kid in the church, Jesus is the Son of God, which means that he is fully God. Jesus is the Son of Man, which means he's fully man. He's both fully God and fully man. And let me tell you that I believe both of those ideas to be true. I believe that those two titles, there's almost a sense to which it's the exact opposite. The Son of God title, which was used more often than not in Jewish literature to just talk about the messianic king from the Son of David. Like Son of God very much was associated with a human king, not a divine Lord. So anytime you read Son of God language, you should probably be thinking more like human king leading the people of Israel in the new Messiah line that comes out of David's family. When you read the Son of Man title, it could possibly be just the language of like, well, that's the son that comes from a human man, so he's a human. And the book of Ezekiel uses that phrase a lot to just mean a human being. But as you keep reading the way that Jesus talks about son of man on his lips, you'll find again and again he keeps hinting to this idea that he's referring to Daniel 7, which was read earlier in the service. So if you didn't, in your bulletin, go back. If you weren't focusing and listening when Joey was reading it, he tried to cue you, cue you up to say, listen, this is really important for understanding Son of Man language. Daniel 7 is a story of a man who has a vision, like a dream. And the dream is about a man on a throne called the Ancient of Days, and that there's another man who comes to the throne, and his name is the Son of Man. And the one who's on the throne gives to the Ancient of Days the rule and reign of all peoples, all tongues, and all languages over the whole earth. So you've got these two characters, but they're all seeming in terms of their authority equal. The one who's called the Ancient of Days and the one who's called the Son of Man. I believe that when Jesus, who by the way, he's the only person in the New Testament that refers to him as the Son of Man, meaning Peter and John and James, no one else calls Jesus Son of Man, only Jesus calls himself Son of Man. And I think one reason is because it's obscure enough that it's not like, hey, by the way, I'm God, because he could quickly say, oh yeah, like Ezekiel, you know, I'm, I'm a human. And Roman people that don't know the Jewish scriptures would have no idea what he's talking about, but a scribe? who he's referring to right here, remember? The scribe said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he said, the Son of Man will have no place to lay his head. So now try and put those pictures together. You're a scribe, and you know that the Son of Man language comes from Daniel 7. You know that that man is going to have rule and reign over the whole earth, and that God's giving that man rule and reign. But Jesus flips that idea to say, yes, I'm the son of man from Daniel 7, but I'm going to have a life of suffering, a life of poverty, a life of no place to lay my head. Or as Mark chapter 10 would say, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. These are the kind of phrases you'll find if you just start doing a study of Jesus saying son of man. They're very often associated with his suffering on the earth, his suffering on the cross, or his future vindication as Lord over all creation. Those are the three contexts of Jesus, son of man. Suffering on the earth like this, I'll have no place to lay my head. Suffering on the cross, the Son of Man was going to give his life as a ransom for many. 
or future vindication where he's going to make all things right. Prophetic words from Jesus. So mix these two thoughts together. The one who has all authority will come and have no place to lay his head. He will suffer. This would have flipped the concept of the Messiah upside down for a Jewish person. And it would not be a surprise if that scribe said, yeah, that's not what I was looking for. What about you? Are you willing to suffer? Is Jesus supreme? Does he have total allegiance in your life in every area of it? Are you hoping to just get today another little tidbit for how to balance your checkbook? How to improve your marriage? I mean this in all sincerity. I'd love to see those things happen among us in this church. But the only way they come is when they flow out of Jesus, it is all yours. You are enough. You're the supreme ruler. I'm going to get my cues from you. I'm not going to bow down to my mom or my dad or the government of the United States or anybody else as supreme other than Jesus. And that's what it means to follow him. So it means to be his disciple, and that's what we want to try and encourage every day. And my friends, I don't believe this will be a very popular message if this is what we speak week in and week out. I do think people will be saved. I do think people will be changed by the Holy Spirit and that our church should see or expect at times conversions and growth. But if it's not in the thousands and the thousands, and if we care more about discipleship than that should reflect all kinds of things for how we do life and church together. So, as we close, who do you think Jesus is? If he has revealed himself as the Son of Man more so than any other designation, then maybe that's the respect and the, the all that we should give him. And so, as we pray now, I hope we will bow our heads knowing we're bowing our heads to Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Not just that he came, but that he lived, that he suffered, that he gave up everything. We thank you for Jesus, that he had the whole throne of heaven, and he left his Father's throne so infinite and free and came to die for all of us. We give praise to Jesus now. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the gift of life, for knowing what life is truly about. We thank you for the kingdom that he has invited us to be a part of, that no one will leave their father or their mother or their friends or their family and not receive a hundred times more in this life and in the life to come. I pray, God, that we would receive the promises that Jesus has offered in the local church and realize that as we count the cost, it would be very hard to follow Jesus. But I pray that there'd be many of us that say, but the other option is just not a possibility. Lead us toward that in Jesus' name, amen.